This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. What I want to talk about today is the fact that there's a huge asymmetry between the way that we, in our culture and in other cultures, the way that we treat non-human animals versus human animals. And I'm interested in what are the motivations, what are the theoretical foundations for why this, these practices are acceptable. Um, so that's what motivated my research to begin with. And um, so as I did some research on this, I came to understand or came to believe that the way that we treat non-human animals suffers from something that in the literature they call species speciesism. So I'm going I'm to use some terms here and give you some definitions. So first thing I want to talk about is this term I'll use a lot or maybe refer to. Speciesism is an unjustified discriminatory, discriminatory prejudice analogous to racism and sexism involving a bias in favor of the interests of the members of, one, of one's own species and against those of members of other species. So when I refer to speciesism, you could sort of think of, think of it as analogous to racism or sexism. Um, and so the question that I, the question that uh, was interest, interest me in this talk, I'm going to try to focus on a little bit, is the question uh, of why is it that this asymmetry in treatment exists? What is it? about the difference between humans and non-humans. Why are humans morally special? Are we, do we have certain properties that make us morally special? And if we do, what are they? Um, I think there's a really kind of clear way to look at these, what I'm working on by looking at these two questions. Well, hopefully everyone can see these. This is the way that Peter Singer puts it. Peter Singer is a philosopher who is sort of the father of this stuff. Here are the two questions that interest me. Is it justifiable to give preferential moral treatment to humans simply on the grounds that they are members of the species Homo sapiens? That is, is speciesism defensible? If speciesism is not defensible, what properties might all human beings have that justify placing greater moral significance on what happens to them than on what happens to animals? So I'm interested in this little bolded word, all, here. And that is, what is it about every single human being that makes us morally special? It seems like there's, there's, there's something. If it's really something that we should adopt as a normative um, policy is another question. So I think, I don't know if I'll have time to do this today, but there's kind of three theses that I, I'm interested in defending. The first thesis is this. So this is where I'm focused today. The first thesis is that is the view that species membership, uh, the view that species membership marks the boundary of moral considerability, or even some special higher grade of moral considerability, is arbitrary and not a justifiable basis of normativity. So that's the first thesis I'm interested in defending. The second thesis is. It is not justifiable to give preferential moral treatment to beings solely on the grounds of species membership. And the third thesis 
some people call it radical, and other people have used another word to describe it. <laughs> Crazy. That's okay, I accept that. A consistent moral theory is one in which moral properties depend primarily, or perhaps even solely, upon sentience and intrinsic cognitive properties of individual organisms. So this is where I'm this is what I'm gonna look at today. I'm gonna to see if there's enough here to defend if I can if I can pull that off. Okay? Before I go on and look at some of the arguments here, I wanna talk about the term moral considerability because I use that a lot. And uh it seems that complex cognitive abilities can and do play a part in the amount of suffering and joy that a sentient organism can experience. That seems pretty uncontroversial. If this is true, then it does seem that it's reasonable that the answers to some questions regarding the moral considerability of certain organisms are dependent upon cognitive properties. It doesn't seem uncontroversial to me. When I use the term moral considerability, Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm talking about. This should be A. A being is morally considerable if the being's well-being must, from a moral point of view, be taken into consider consideration, regardless of whether any other being values the object or its well-being. So the sense of moral considerability that I'm after here is not solely a relational, or not a relational property. It's intrinsic. What do I mean by that? What I'm, what I'm saying is, look, this pen could be morally considerable. Someone in this room would say, this is my favorite pen, and this is important to me morally, and so I give this moral weight. That's not the sense of moral considerability that I'm talking about. That's, that's sort of a relational property where you, um, you can give it moral considerability. What I'm talking about is, are there any properties that are intrinsic to beings that would uh, sort of um, inform us as to their moral considerability. So I think there are. And let me talk a little bit about that. So here's what I'm going to focus today because, well, because this is my talk and I'm allowed to do that. Um, so I'm going to focus on what I think is the, the, the sort of weakest link in the argument from those who say that humans are morally special. So there's a problem in saying that all humans have moral primacy over non-humans, and that is not all humans have properties that people pick out that we think, these intrinsic properties that we think are morally relevant. There are humans who are sort of in vegetative states and stuff like that. And so there's an argument in the literature that is used often to point this out, and it's called the argument from marginal cases. Now, I guess that's kind of an unfortunate term to call these individuals marginal cases. It's not that they're marginally human. It's that they're, they're, the questions regarding their moral considerability are on the margins of their being full-blown agents and full-blown moral, um, moral agents or recipients of moral considerability. So I want to put this argument up here and because the, then the rest of the talk I'm going to focus I'm going to keep referring back to this argument. And this is, you know, it's a popular argument. It's in literature all over the place. So the problem that I'm going to focus on is those human beings amongst us who are severely cognitively impaired. 
okay? They present a problem for this asymmetry in treatment. So here's what the argument looks like. The first premise is that it's undeniable that many species other than Homo sapiens have interests, at least in the minimal sense that they uh, feel and try to avoid pain and feel and seek various sorts of pleasure and satisfaction. Two, it's equally undeniable that human infants and some severely cognitively disabled humans, that is what are called marginal cases, have interests in only the sense that members of these other species have them, and not in the sense that normal adult humans, or sometimes what they're called moral agents, have them. Three, thus in terms of the morally relevant characteristic of having interests, some humans, for example, marginal cases, must be equated with members of other species, animal moral patients, which are just normal animals, rather than with normal adult human beings who are moral agents. That's controversial, right? Four is, yet predominant moral judgments about conduct towards these humans are dramatically different from judgments about conduct toward the comparable animals. That's just a fact. We think a lot differently towards severely cognitively impaired humans than we do to bonobos, chimps, or something like that. But absent a finding of some morally relevant property other than having interests that distinguishes these humans from animals, we must conclude that the predominant moral judgments about them are inconsistent. To be consistent and to that extent rational, we must either treat marginal humans the same way we now treat animals, or treat animals the same way we now treat marginal humans. So I think the crux of this argument sort of turns on the notion of being consistent. And that doesn't seem to be an unreasonable request when it comes to some kind of moral theory, right? You, will, you do want to be consistent. Yeah. Is it okay to ask questions at this point? Or? Uh, it's up to you. Is that how it works? Yeah, sure. It's fine. It seems like there might be, I don't know if you're embracing this argument or not, but it seems like there might be two ways of restoring it. One is to say that fetuses, for example, have the potential to become sentient human beings. So the potential argument gives the moral status intrinsically. Another would be to say that in the case of a fetus, there's a relational property that does apply and that Adults, parents, for example, care about the fetus. Right. So in that, that case, you go beyond intrinsic value to talk about relations. So to ask for consistency is seems like it's asking for a lot because you're you're restricting some other possible arguments that could restore the case. That right. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on some, but actually both of those points. But I think you're right. First of all, to say that the fetus has potential. And those potential, that potential, after fleshing out the metaphysical questions about what that is, but if we could, we can say that has moral relevance, and that would play into it. And also this question of relational properties, right? So, to your first point, I'll just, I'm just going to take a really easy kind of sidestep on that one and say, I'm not talking about fetuses. So let's eliminate them. Let's talk about children who are born with their brains on the outside of their skulls. And they have no, and this is a, I mean, it's an it's a unfortunate genetic defect, and it's horrible. But there are children such that they're like that. So I can cook up a case of, you know, an infant like that who happens to be an orphan. And, I mean, I can go there. And those are the ones I want to focus on because I just need some kind of counterexample to get my foot in the door to show that maybe not all human beings in virtue of their being members of the species or whatever, have this kind of moral primacy. 
So I think that's good. And to the second point with regard to the relations, I'm going to talk about that and see if maybe we can talk more and see if I, I can clarify that. So that's good. Six says, there does not seem to be a morally relevant characteristic that distinguishes all humans from all other animals. Notice all is important. Of course there are distinguishing characteristics. Like we, we have full-blown language and animals don't. Right? But that's not, I'm, not, I'm talking about all humans. The conclusion is, and this is a strong conclusion, and I'm not even clear, to, I'm not even sure I endorse the conclusion. I'm saying this is a good place to start. We cannot give a reasoned justification for the differences in ordinary conduct towards some humans as against some animals. So, the paradigm case is a congenitally, severely, cognitively impaired human being. For example, an, an infant or child who's severely retarded. That would sort of be my paradigm case. And add that it's an orphan and no one cares about it. So there you have everything you could have in the case. And I cooked up the strongest case. Okay, so... How do we rescue, um, how might we rescue more, uh, the moral primacy of human beings over non-humans? What, what, what do people say? Well, here's the first kind of response that most people have. There are a lot of names of this, for this in the literature, but uh, I like the way, there's a guy named Jeff, Jeff McMahon who uh, is writing on this stuff. I like the way he, he, uh, he talks about it. David's familiar with um, anyway, the view is anthropocentrism, and it says neither, neither animals nor cognitively impaired human beings can be morally assimilated to the other because there are factors in addition to an individual's psychological capacities or intrinsic capacities or potentials, as we were saying, that are major determinants of that individual's moral status and how it may be treated. And animals and the severely retarded differ with, with respect to some of these factors. So, in a nutshell, the argument is, look, humans are different than animals in some special way. So now my question is, what is that special way? What are the properties that all human beings have that no animals have that make human beings special? What are some candidates? We were close, but that's not going to be one of them. Um, uh, First of all, here's a problem with anthropocentrism. The question is, what are these non-relational properties? So here's some solutions people have said. Well, humans have souls and animals don't. Okay? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that one. First, because it's improbable. At least to me, I'm sorry to dismiss it so out of hand. <laughs> but even if it were probable, it doesn't solve the problem for the following reason. And that is, if you have a soul that's immortal, then it, I guess it doesn't matter too much about what happens to you while you're here because you're going to live forever, so killing you isn't that bad. It actually releases you to your eternal bliss. <laughs> Here's another big argument, and we could spend a few hours talking about this one, but I won't. And a lot of philosophers have emphasized rationality. Human beings are rational, and animals are not rational. Humans are the kinds of creatures whose typical members have morally significant properties, for example, rationality, such that those who don't, severely retarded people, they are bestowed this kind of honorary moral status. So the reason why a severely cognitively impaired human being gets moral primacy, even though it is not rational, is because the rest of us are rational. Right? So 
that human being rides on the coattails and gets in because I'm rational and the rest of us are not This is sort of the norm of the species. But there are a lot of problems with this. We feel bad for the retarded person, but not the dog. Now, the case in the literature that people use all the time is the case of the super chimp. The super chimp case is that some chimp just comes along, goes to Harvard, discusses philosophy, smokes a pipe, <laughs> drinks single malt scotch probably, and this chimp comes along and we say, well, the typical member of this, he's not a typical member of his species, so he's not going to be afforded this kind of moral considerability. That seems, that's crazy. The saying, the typical member of his species is not rational, so that means we don't treat him in, with moral consider, considerability. That just doesn't seem right. There are tons of arguments against rationality, and I'm not going to go into them, but when you have, in the question period, feel free to ask me questions about why I think placing moral considerability, hanging your coat on rationality is bankrupt. It's not a good idea. Unless there's people you're willing to sacrifice. Um, language, but this can't be because not all humans have language. Some humans don't have language at all, and yet we consider them morally considerable. So now, we come down to this kind of brute idea. Well, membership in, homo, in the species Homo sapiens is sufficient. You're just in the club because you're one of us. That's what makes you special. It's just a brute fact. You're a homo, you're a homo sapien, you're morally considerable. It doesn't matter what your cognitive properties. is. doesn't matter if you're severely cognitively disabled. doesn't matter what the story is. If you're Alzheimer patient, you're in. Right? Okay. So... I have a reply to that, as you might imagine. First of all, there are some problems here. I won't go into them in detail, but we can talk about them. First of all, what is it to be of the same species? It's not clear exactly what species is. Of course, at the macro level, it seems obvious. We sort of have this intuition. We're of the same species. But from the biological perspective, it's not clear exactly what that means. Of course, we all learned in eighth grade that a species, two members, two organisms are the member of the same species if they can reproduce fertile offspring. But there's plenty of counterexamples to that. So the whole notion of species is kind of not clear. Secondly, even if I grant you, I say, okay, being in the club, uh, all it requires to be in the club is to be is to be Homo sapien. Why is that? Why is that um, morally significant? That just seems arbitrary. Why not go, if you have blue eyes, you're in the club. If you have brown hair, you're in the club. What is it about species membership? There are a lot of other problems that, that I just listed here very quickly that I'm not <laughs> going to talk about. I love to pound on essentialism, but I'm not going to do that today. And uh, typological thinking, what a genotype is. There's things like polytypic species that have crazy you know, divergent phenotypes, yet they can interbreed. So, there's ring species where A can produce with B, B can produce with C. So there's all these different cases that raise problems for this view. I don't think it's really a, a good place to, to look. So here's what I think the, the best place to look if you think that humans are special. And this goes to, I think, your question, which is a view that I call the special relations view. The special relations view says that 
co-membership in a species is seen as some kind of special relation. Okay? So, this alternate, alternative defense of anthropocentrism is to abandon the search for intrinsic differences between animals and human beings with comparable psychological capacities and to claim instead that the relevant difference is extrinsic or relational. So look, the reason why the severely retarded child is has moral primacy over the normal, cognitively um, normal chimp is that I'm related to that thing in some way. I'm related to that child in some way. Now the question is, what? how do we flesh out that relationship? Is it we share the same genome? Is it that could be me? What is the relationship that gives that thing moral primacy? Now, of course, people always say to me, well, these relations, they, they tend to elicit partiality. Like, I feel a certain thing. When I look at that child, I feel a certain way that I don't feel for the chimp. But of course, just because a relation elicits partiality, that doesn't seem like that's something that we should um, say justifies that partiality or our theory of, of normativity. Okay. So here's the spe- what I call the special relations view. Okay. Here's the special relations view. The other way that someone might try and ground the normative claims for the treatment of these marginal unit argument for marginal cases is to say that they have a special relation. Now there's a woman who's an esteemed philosopher and ethicist at Michigan. She's at Michigan, Elizabeth Anderson. She um she has a view like this. And here's what she says. This is quoting her from an article that just came out last year. Moral considerability is not an intrinsic property of any creature, nor is it supervenient on only its intrinsic properties, such as capacities. It depends deeply on the kind of relations they can have with us. So she and I are pretty much 180 degrees. We're at odds about what these... How to look at this question. Okay. Furthermore, these special social relations are dependent on both the species nature of the animals themselves, as well as, quote, on historically contingent facts about human beings. So, people who advocate the relations view, certain principles of justice only make sense within the context of some set of kind of historically contingent relations. The last thing I'll talk about is the relationship between the special relations view and the argument for marginal cases. For the advocate of the special relations view, the reason that the argument for marginal cases fails is because it models animal rights claims on human rights claims. Humans are by their species nature fit for living with one another in society. Anderson thinks that the argument for marginal cases fails because it does not recognize that questions of moral considerability are actually questions about contingent human social practices. She argues that the argument for marginal cases is mistaken in that it assumes the view that moral considerability depends upon some set of intrinsic properties that an individual being possesses. I think her critique of the force of the argument for marginal cases is worth quoting here. So I want to I want to put a quote that she has because of course I want to attack it. So I'm going to put it up here. 
But I think this is going to what you're, you're talking about. So this is a quote from Elizabeth Anderson. Here's what she says about this very thing that I'm talking about. To see what's wrong with this way of thinking, that is the argument from marginal cases, consider the following case. There is some evidence that chimps and parrots can be taught a language, at least up to the ling linguistic level of a toddler. Let's suppose that this is so. There are some human beings whose potential for language development is limited to the level of the average toddler, and hence no greater than the potential for language possessed by chimps and parrots. It is evident that any human, even with such limited linguistic capacities, has a moral right to be taught a language. If the argument from marginal cases is right in deriving moral rights from individual capacities, then chimps and parrots also have a moral right to be taught a language. The conclusion is absurd, even where the linguistic capacities of a human and a parrot or chimp are identical, their interests in learning a language are not. It is no disadvantage to the chimps or parrots that their potentials for language are so limited. For the characteristic species life of chimps and parrots does not require sophisticated linguistic communication. It is a grave disadvantage to a human being for its language capacities to be similarly limited. For the species life of humans does require language. Every human being, therefore, has a profound interest in learning a language. This interest is certainly strong enough to ground every human's right to be taught a language. Okay. So that actually has a lot of intuitive pull. It, it, it does seem like there's something to what she's saying, and I think that she's right to say that this conclusion is absurd. The only problem is, is that I don't think the example is good. She's right in what she's talking about, but she's leaving something important out. And I want to I press on what I think are just two problems with this. First of all, and this is my own little um, peccadillo I have here, is I have a problem with words like characteristic human nature, characteristic animal nature. I'm not going to go heavily into it, but I think these are metaphysically suspect categories. I really don't know what a characteristic human nature is. I'm not sure about what that is. I can't really flesh that out. Why does it have to be metaphysical? It could be an empirical claim about the properties, a statistical generalization of the properties of individuals over a population. Right. Right. And then the metaphysical worry doesn't help. Yeah. And then, then I guess another question that would arise is, um, so now, which properties do we extrapolate upon as statistical abstractions to claim are morally important? And then why are those important? So why, why do we say, oh, this property? Well, so, uh, you know, it's not a well-fleshed-out answer, but it seems like you could take, you know, a statistical model of the way people live and see which, which parts are salient, which parts are actually doing the work in their lives. Right. Those would be the relevant properties. And, and what if those same properties are generated by abstractions in non-human populations? Here's the question I'm getting at. Is it the properties or is it the, the individuals in the population that we're focusing on? So if we're going to just do properties, then, we, then I'm fine with that. We'll have Martians come in. We'll have, anyone who fits the bill fits in, right? 
Well, isn't that the superchip example? Superchip case with. So it seems like that's something that we might want to allow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm with you. I like that. Okay, so we don't have to worry about the metaphysics of it. That's good. So I have a different. I have a different problem. I'll. I'll uh, I want to talk about something else. She says. Okay. Here's what she says. She says. Um, it's a grave to, to to reiterate. It's a grave disadvantage to a human being for its language capacities to be similarly limited. Right. For the species life of humans does require language. Every human being, therefore, has a profound interest in learning a language. Okay. First of all, this just can't be right. There's no way this can be right, what she just said. Not all humans have a right to learn language. Only if they have a capacity to learn a language. There are some, some human beings whose capacity for learning language is much lower than that of a chimpanzee, say, Kwanzi uh, or the parrot, the African gray parrot, Alex, right? Now, here's what I'm trying to get at. Um, if we take the any human part seriously, it's just false. It just can't be the case. So human beings, we language adds to the richness and the diversity of, of, of our experience, and maybe all human beings have that need, but not all human beings have the capacity for language. So, here's what I'm getting at. Humans whose quality of life is generally indifferent to language possession, they don't have that interest. Among those human beings with an interest in learning language, then we have obligations to them. But here's my point. The reason why we have obligations to human beings who do possess the capacity to learn language at even a minimal level is not our relation to them, it's the intrinsic properties that they have, namely their ability to learn language. So my, my, my problem with this argument is it, it's sort of, it, makes, it makes the argument look as if these properties are relational, when in fact, when you try to flush it out, the reason why we have a moral obligation to teach language toddlers or people who are stuck at that age of toddlers is because each that individual has the property to learn language. If they don't, we don't have a moral obligation to do it. Can I just ask you a clarification? I thought you yeah. were accepting her point that we don't have a moral obligation to parents and chimps to teach them a language. But now it sounds like you're rejecting that because you think we do have a moral obligation in the same way that we would to marginal... I'm saying... No. I mean, if it's just the fact that they can that gives them the interest. Here's what I'm rejecting. I'm rejecting the claim. I'm, I'm saying I don't. I feel like I don't have to say whether or not I think we have a moral obligation or not. Here's what I want to say. If we're going to be consistent, whatever you tell, whatever we'll decide our obligation is, then what we decided on is the intrinsic properties of the individuals. So, in other words. What I'm rejecting is the claim that all human beings have have a um, a right to be taught a language. In virtue of what is my question? So what I'm trying to say is, those human beings who have the capacity to learn language, if we decide that they have a moral right to learn language, for whatever argument you give me, I'll I'll say, well, why are we saying only to humans? See, I thought the point of this was to was to attack the idea that you can read off 
moral um, uh, responsibilities off naturalistic properties. So you've got two right. sets of beings, same naturalistic properties, same capacities, but in one case, she's arguing we have a, that there's a good argument that we have a moral duty mm -hmm. with respect to one kind of being but not the other. But they don't differ in naturalistic properties. So if you think we have different obligations, then either you've got to go her route, which is not an intrinsic route, it's saying there's extrinsic factors matter right. here, right. or you've got to give some other account. Now, I thought, so this is why I just got confused, I thought you were accepting her argument, her conclusion, but not her argument for the conclusion. But now it sounds like you're rejecting the conclusion, which means that you do think, I mean, if you think it's just intrinsic properties, then you do mm -hmm. think we have a moral obligation to teach parrots and chimpanzees language. What I, what I am, well, first of all, I would say, if language is required for a chimp or a, or a, a parrot to have a rich life, then I would say yes, but I'm not, I don't, let's put it this way. What's the difference between like a house cat and a feral cat? I don't, I have different obligations perhaps to the feral cat because it can take care of itself. The house cat or some kind of doesn't, can't do that. A chimp can have a rich, diverse life without language. A parrot can have a rich life without language. Some human beings can require language to have a rich, diverse life. So that might ground some kind of moral obligation to the human that is not grounded to the chimp. But let, let me let me let me give something. When I said I agree with her conclusion, what I'm saying is I agree with her conclusion. Except in her example, she leaves out cases of humans who, who, she's saying, there are human beings who can learn language up to a certain capacity. And I'm saying, if that's all, if that's the set of all the human beings, then I agree with her argument. But she's leaving out human beings who can't learn language. And those human beings, I think, then, then I don't agree with her conclusion. So I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is, I agree with her conclusion here in the way that she frames the argument, but she leaves out an important part of the argument. I'm not sure I am not sure if I answered your question. Yeah. You have a suspicious thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll Yeah. Well, it seems to be that the issue and I think you just touched on it is that it's not actually the case that the chimpanzee and the parrot have the same naturalistic properties as the human. Um, even though they have the same linguistic capacities, they have different naturalistic properties depending because they um, you know, yeah, I think that's the claim I'm dubious about. I mean, you have to say more about the complete life here and what counts as, you know, how you're getting this out of naturalism this idea of a complete life and what counts is it like who has more utility and to get the same utility you know what's I mean even just really basically you know a chimpanzee can interact with other chimpanzees and have a social life without language or as a human can't really interact with chimpanzees I mean a human who doesn't have doesn't have language doesn't have really have anyone to have a social life with to put the human being with chimpanzees I don't think they're going to very well then. Because of their other naturalistic properties. Well, and also, the, the humans under discussion, right, are the humans who ex don't really have much capacity to language. So, mm -hmm. to what extent is that going to be valuable for them? It's not clear that it will be at all. Like, this, for example, 
Yeah, that, that one's basically my problem. But I'll question. Oh, yeah. If uh, some individuals have a right to be taught a language, okay. that means, I guess, someone else has an obligation to teach it to them. Right. Who? Uh, well, I mean, for, for Anderson, the who is the community. We, as a community, we have, we have a right, we have an obligation. Someone has to do it. And yeah. Saying the community is a, is a cop out. Some individual has to be. Yeah. Deborah, do you know the answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs> who has the obligation to teach, according to Anderson? Well, there's a legal obligation to educate children. Now, there's questions about to what extent and what level, but that's a legal obligation in our society to be educated. In our society, but we're talking about people in general where there are those legal obligations. I mean, it doesn't, this argument doesn't make sense unless you specify who has the obligation to teach the language. Mm. You can't just have a right without someone else having an obligation. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, but let me try, I should try to finish up. Or can I keep going with this? Okay, so I'll leave some time for questions. I'm sorry. Uh, so, okay, the last thing I want to say before I just dismiss this argument out of hand is, um, is to say that here's another problem I have overall with uh, relational arguments of this kind, and that is, I think they're speciesist. And here's what I mean by that. Let me give you an example. I'm going to take something that Anderson said, and I'm just going to substitute in a couple words and tell me if you have a problem. Special moral status of whites is best accounted for by the fact that a white person is related to us has a certain characteristic racial nature or shares certain historically contingent facts with us that a black person does not. So that's obviously ignorant, bigoted, and racist, and yet this, to me, seems like the kind of thing that is hidden behind this relational claim, and that is that relational claims of this sort are speciesist. They're unjustifiably speciesist in that they place primacy on human beings solely in virtue of the fact of species membership, and I just don't think that's a good place to rest any kind of claims of normativity. So that's my other problem with um, Elizabeth Anderson. Okay, now, quickly I'm going to move on. If, if you hadn't, you know that stuff in the beginning I said that was crazy? You know, if you thought that everything I did so far was crazy, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> Hopefully you haven't, you haven't seen the crazy stuff. It hasn't been up there yet. Um, anyway, let me just say that uh, here's what I focused on after this. So I started thinking, well, maybe the thing that makes people or makes organisms, beings, morally considerable are these certain intrinsic properties, and this kind of makes sense. So, from a simple example, you know, I, I have, I, I kick a rock or I kick a, a kitten. What's the difference? Why, why is, why am I morally reprehensible if I just wantonly kick a cat? Because it has properties that the rock doesn't. That seems to be the answer. It has nothing to do with whether or not I violated some categorical, hypothetical, Kantian whatever. No, it's just because the cat feels pain. Period. That's what's wrong with it. So I started thinking, 
what are some other properties that beings and organisms would have that would make them morally considerable at different levels? So if I thought, for example, if I put something in a cage, if I put you in a cage and I say to you, don't worry, I'm, I'm going to open the cage in five minutes. I'm just, I'm just playing a little game. You're going to reduce your anxiety. But if I take an animal, a non-human, and put it in a cage, and I can't, it doesn't understand when I say, I'm going to take you out in five minutes. The fact that it does not share that linguistic sophistication and understanding is morally relevant to me putting it into a cage. So I started thinking, there are probably a lot of properties that are morally relevant that are actually not only sentience, but cognitive properties as well. Now, Peter Singer, keep referring to crazy and people who are controversial, Peter Singer says, here's the kind of things that I'm thinking about when, when, when he says, these are things that if creatures have them, they're morally relevant. Rational, self-conscious, future-oriented preferences, self-awareness, aspirations for a life, the conception of oneself as a living being with a future, possessing a life that is biographical and not merely biological, conscious states that are linked over time, forward-looking desires that extend beyond periods of sleep or temporary unconsciousness, for example, desire to complete my studies, a desire to have children, or simply a desire to go on living, in addition to desires for immediate satisfaction and pleasure. So, Singer, in his book Practical Ethics, just throws this out there and says, this is sort of what I'm talking about, and he moves on. So, I decided, well, let me see if I can sort of quantify this stuff. Let me see if I can get a little bit clearer on what these properties might be that Singer's after, that says, if a being has them, then they're morally relevant. Okay? So, regarding the ethical implications of sentience and certain cognitive capacities, it seems that one way to frame the question is this. What do our best theories of cognition tell us about the mental attributes of animals and which of these attributes are morally significant? However, that's not the way I attack the problem. I thought of the question in a different way, and I just thought of it like this. What are the cognitive properties that, if anything, fills that bill, then that creature has moral considerability? So I don't care if it's what it's made out of, I don't care if it's a Martian, I don't care if it's silicon, all I'm saying is, what are the properties that if something has them, they, that particular um, individual would be morally considerable. So I started out, and I found a matrix by a guy named Gary Varner at the University of Texas, and he, he had a matrix in a book, and this is what it looked like. Well, I'm calling this matrix zero. This matrix lists six comparisons between normal humans and various animals. Indicates whether scientific evidence for the comparison has been found, indicated by a plus. Sought but not found, indicated by a minus sign. Or not carefully investigated with the question mark. So for example, do earthworms have nociceptors? Nociceptors are those um, nerve cells that fire only in instances of pain, or they're associated with pain, they're not identical. Well, maybe they are, I don't know, but they're pain-related. Earthworms, we don't know. Insects, probably not. Cephalopods, fish, reptiles, we don't know. Birds and mammals, yes, have nociception. So you go down, central nervous system, nociceptors connected to central nervous system, opioid receptors. Opioid receptors are very important in these studies because 
if if uh, their opioid receptors are kind of analgesics, they're released. Opiate the opioid receptors release are uh, are released in, with re, um, in response to pain, and so they seem. It seems to be the case if they're selected for, they're selected for for a reason, and they're selected for because pain is present. So they're important. Response modified by analgesics, so they torture something and then they give it some analgesic and it calms down. It seems to be an indication of pain. Response to damaging stimuli is analogous to humans. So here's the chart. Here's the way it looks. Mammals, of course, are all in. Birds, a question mark about their central nervous systems being connected to nociception. Reptiles, same thing. And as you can see, as you come down to the earthworm, to the earthworm, the only thing we really know is that they have opioid receptors. Yeah. What's a site? Oh, cephalopod. Oh, like a squid. Um, actually, that's kind of controversial because there's a lot of studies about squids um, as having a lot of properties that we haven't figured out yet. So, anyway, so there's a... Okay, so what did I do? I took it upon myself to go further. Here's what I did. I'm just going to put these matrices up and then you can have at it. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build some kind of matrix system that... Here's, here's, my, here's my project. I'm not trying to say, look at this matrix and then it tells you whether or not you can go to McDonald's. I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying. If you're building a moral theory and you want to remain consistent, and you value the intrinsic properties of particular organisms, then what these matrices can do is to inform you as to which organisms should be warranted or guaranteed specific treatment, given that they have those properties. In other words, you're not looking and going, well, this is a human, that gets in, this is a chimp, well, that's sort of intelligent, that gets in. Not doing it that way. I'm trying to do it in some kind of formalized way. So let me show you what I came up with. Here's the first matrix I came up with. This is criteria sufficient for moral considerability relative to selected ethical considerations. So over here, I just looked at some popular theories that are out there in the literature, like base level consideration, just getting into the club. Just, just the difference between a rock and a cat. Then here I have sort of a utilitarian Peter Singer view. Here's a Tom Reagan animal rights view, and here's full Kantian personhood. So I took these theories, and I did a lot of research on it, and I tried to figure out, if you have these properties, would you be considered morally considerable if you were in this particular, under this particular, particular theory? So for example, if you're sentient, you get base level consideration. If you're a utilitarian, you certainly get consideration. If you're a Tom Reagan animal rights person, I'm not really sure where he comes down on that. And if you're a Kantian, you require full Kantian personhood. Of course, sentience is not going to get you in to the club. And then I moved to anxiety, self-recognition. These are more advanced cognitive properties. Self-awareness, autonoeotic memory, which is kind of like a, a, having a past and a future and a sense of yourself and fitting into the picture of your life. A theory of mind, which is simply having beliefs about a conspecific's beliefs. So if a chimp thinks that belief, that that other chimp is angry, that chimp has a theory of mind. And last, what's called full biographical consciousness, which is what you and I have. So I made this matrix and I thought, okay, well this gives me some information. 
these these different uh, blocks tell me, depending on what theory I want to build, if I want to be consistent, these are important pro cognitive properties that I can fit into. So if I'm a Kantian and I say this this creature just has sentience, it's not it's not going to get full moral considerability. I don't know what the hell is going to happen over here, but I do know that full biographical consciousness is going to get me into the Kant Club. The Kant Club is the hardest one to get into. That's a tough one. It's restricted. Here's my next matrix. These are proposed relations between sentience and selected cognitive properties and selected organisms that may possess them. This is all the empirical research I did. So I did a lot of reading to try to figure out. Because people always ask me, oh, you're a vegetarian. Oh, well, do you take antibiotics? Do you step on ants? Uh, do you breathe bacteria? So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to answer that question. Okay, I'm tired of having to say that I take antibiotics. So what I was looking at was I was trying to I was trying to come up with some kind of some kind of way. To, so what properties do these things have, and 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 um, how do they relate to these certain uh, organisms? So, for example, a human person, of course, is sentient, has anxiety. All the stuff, full biographical consciousness, the same stuff that was on the other matrix. Worst case, human moral patient. For example, the anencephalic child, the child born with the brain on the outside. Sentience, probably. Anxiety, no, 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 none of this. Bonobo, chimp, has everything but full biographical consciousness? Question mark. I don't know. I don't think we know. Dolphin, pig, rat. Then we come down to the mollusk. Mollusk. The only question mark I have is sentience. I don't really know if mollusks are sentient. They don't really have much in the way of opioid receptors or nociceptors. So I don't know. I don't know about clams. Looks like they don't have any of these other problems. Okay, so now, let me, yeah, they're in trouble. Let me finish up by putting, on my, putting up my last two matrices. And then there's just a few minutes left. Here's the one. Now this matrix, this just follows from everything else, and this is the one that is the most crazy. However, it just follows from what I just did. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm saying, look, if you're one of these organisms, and given everything I just talked about, if you take one of these four popular theories, or three popular theories combined with base, letter consi base level consideration, this matrix is going to tell you whether you're in or out. So, what am I saying? I'm trying to say here, if you're a utilitarian, then you're in, humans are in, worst case moral patients may or may not be in, depending on your theory, if you're a singarian or something else. Bonobos, bottlenose, pigs, all the way, mollusks, I don't know. But if you're a Kantian, human persons, you're in, worst case moral patient, probably not, everything else. So I'm trying to generate some kind of matrix that has to do not so much with practices but with moral theories and saying here's what I think the value of this is is if you're generating a moral theory or you're researching a moral theory and you want to remain consistent with regard to intrinsic properties that certain organisms most probably have and the relation to our treatment of them this can be very informative at least it is to me okay last thing I'm going to do I promise is my last thing the last thing I'm going to put up here is what I think is a um, an application. How would you use this? How would someone like me use this matrix? And I have a matrix that I want to put up here. 
Let's talk about animals as subjects of non-consensual, harmful, or painful experimentation. Let me tell you what happens every day in this country. The government regulates animal-based toxicity tests. Okay, what does this involve? Many of these tests cause paralysis, swelling, and ulceration of the skin or eyes, mouths, convulsions, and seizures of animals like rabbits. Bleeding from the nose, mouth, and genitals. Military does testing on, in wound labs. What do they do? They take large mammals like sheep and they shoot them. They hang them up and just shoot rifles at them. They also do studies on chimpanzees. We also do things like test products, cosmetics on rats, mice, guinea pigs, rabbits, and other animals. One of the most common tests is called the LD50 test, which means lethal dose 50. It's a test to determine what dosage of a particular product kills 50% of the animals. Another test they do to rabbits is called the Dre's eye test. What they do, they take some kind of thing like cleanser and they pour it in the eyes of rabbits. And they just see how long it takes for the eyes to dissolve. This is done with no anesthesia. Now, these are practices that go on every day, and if they went on with human beings, we would not accept them, but we accept them, and the question is, why? And for most of us, the answer is, because they're not human. And I just think that's a bad answer. And so, here's an example of a matrix that might have some application. To be the subject of a non-consensual, harmful, and painful experiment. Human person, no. Worst case, moral patient, question mark. I'll explain that in a second. I'm not so kind of... Crazy like Nazi or something. I'm just like, I, I, I have a reason why that's there. Bonobos, no. Bottlenose, no. Everything, no. Fish, I don't know. And a mollusk, it looks like, yeah, we can use that. That's not going to help us. Now, let me just get clear. I don't have a question mark here because I think we should take severely cognitively, you know, um, disabled individuals and do painful experiments on them. That's not what I'm saying. What this question mark says is, if we want to be consistent. We have to question why it is that these human moral patients automatically have moral primacy, whereas chimps don't. So I'm putting this question mark here to, as a sort of question mark of consistency to say, if, we need, if we're going to be consistent, we better reconsider how we treat other organisms that have the same kind of cognitive or, or better cognitive capacity than that. All right, let me finish by saying the following thing. The conclusions that I've reached here are tentative, but something fruitful, I hope, can come from my project. A project such as this one can be a valuable reference for anyone who's proposing some kind of new ethical theory. For example, as I mentioned earlier, a work like this could be used to investigate what the implications of different theories might be for various organisms. Moreover, the results of my work could assist those who want to argue exactly what the implications of certain ethical theories are today. Perhaps this is too optimistic a conclusion to reach at this stage, but any reasonable work that attempts to contribute to our understanding of the relationship between cognitive properties and moral treatment is a step towards inclusion of all of our fellow creatures into the sphere of moral considerability. Thank you. We have, no, we have no indication that mollusks can feel pain? That's actually, it's, 
some Moloch's seem to have opioid receptors, and so it's. I think when I when I when I did my work, I actually used mollusk as a category, and now in rethinking about it, I think I need to be more fine grained, because some mollusks some mollusks mollusks do seem to have at least sentience, um, and I can get you the, I can give you tons of studies to see which ones seem to have pain receptors and which ones don't. So. As a general rule, I think it's okay to eat scallops. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but s something like that is probably not sentient, as opposed to squids. They're pretty smart. But yeah, if you're interested in studies, please email me. I'm, I, I have all the stuff lying around. Uh, yeah. Fascinating talking. Um, seems like in your second to last slide or so, you were basically giving evidence of what might be a, a continuum or, or scale that shows degrees of ability to have consciousness or, or cognitive capacity, right. as if it's a continuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at one point you suggest, well, maybe you can use this to know whether you're in or out. Right. Although your, your, the last thing you did suggests that maybe it's not a question of in or out, but that there's also a continuum in terms of the way we treat different animals, that there might be some rights that even animals with very low abilities still have. Yeah. And as you move up the consciousness scale or the sentience scale, right. you're afforded more rights until maybe you, at, the, at the end it's human. Yeah. If that's what you think, which I find very compelling, yeah. I'm wondering what principle you're using to decide which rights you get at which levels of consciousness. You yeah. seem to do that in your very last slide where you said... Oh, in the very... Um, what the example was. This one? You know, you, you must have had some principle in mind that said this is okay and this isn't for this yeah. particular uh, yeah. event. Oh, so, so when I did this one. Yeah. So what the, this particular, when I did this this matrix, what I was thinking about was um, something like a Peter Singer kind of utilitarian view. So I sort of picked a view in general um, and, and applied that to a particular problem. So I, I admit that I sort of front-loaded it because that was the view that I was adopting for this. But I think that you could generate this kind of, this kind of matrix could be generated with whatever, pick your favorite ethical theory and run it through the matrices and, and whatever principles that, that theory has will generate certain I'm wondering treatment. whether for any given theory it's binary. Mm -hmm. You're either in or out depending on some critical right. level. But what you might be suggesting is that kind of a meta theory that says that that as sentience or consciousness increases, right. then there's more and more rights to which yeah. you should be. Yeah, I think forward. that's that's really where. But I'm that wouldn't about. involve any single theory, like Singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that. That's a good point. Um, and I think that uh, um, I agree with the continuity thesis. That's what I call what you're talking about. And I think that it's really important to consider that. Uh, in, in kind of a meta theory, that continuity idea. So that, that's good. I'd like to talk more. Yeah. Um, you kind of approach this as like being consistent in your, your moral uh, views, right? And, um, well, what, let me just say something. I think a moral theory, one of, one of the virtues of a moral theory, which, I mean, I think this is uncontroversial, is that it's consistent. Yeah. So I think consistency is, is important. 
Yeah, no, no, obviously. But uh, I guess looking at the whole marginal cases. Yeah. Um, uh, so what about the danger where someone says, uh, "Oh, okay, well then we should, you know, eat babies," mm -hmm. um, and 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 maybe I won't, and that's that doesn't mean that I'm being immoral. Like uh, uh, the racist who hires uh, the black person is being inconsistent, but I think we all have him on the back. So mm -hmm. I, I I don't know, like being consistently one thing isn't enough, right? I mean, like, we have to be consistent, but uh, why is treating a infant differently than a chimp any more than inconsistent? Is it any more than inconsistent? Because um, then the conclusion would be then maybe we should treat infants like we should treat chimps instead of the reverse. Right. Okay, I'm okay with that. But, I mean, the, okay. No, that's not. I mean, obviously you're not okay with it. There's no, no, no. I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. I'm okay with it if the moral theory that you adopt. Here, here, here's what I tend to think. I tend to think. Let me tell you where I'm coming. I tend to think that most people, whether or not they have a formulated principled moral theory, most people have some even proto-moral theory, and most practices towards animals contradict their own theory. So I think by mo most people's moral theories, tell me your theory and I'll say your theory entails that what you're doing is inconsistent with your own theory. So when I say I'm okay with that, I'm saying you give me your best moral theory and let's just focus first on consistency and then once we get consistent, then then I'll I'll give you some other arguments as to why we shouldn't eat babies or something. I mean, I'm when I say I'm okay with that, I'm saying I value consistency first because I think most people are inconsistent when it comes to their theories. But, I mean, there's not a real crime being inconsistent with giving someone more moral status when they don't deserve it. Right. Right. The so, crime is the reverse. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll but I don't think that's what the crime that everyone's. Well, I mean, you, you would argue that we we aren't giving. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to say. So it's more than, than yeah. just the, the marginal case, cases. Right. It's the marginal cases. And yes, we should yeah, that's good. give them yeah. the, the moral status. Yeah. That's they good. do deserve the moral status. Right. That's good. Yeah. Um, it seems like the consistent application of this would be saying that a thousand year old rhythm is not here. Well, I think that that's a really good question. And I do think that a thousand-year-old redwood tree may have moral considerability, just like Half Dome might have moral considerability, just like the Statue of David might have moral considerability. However, I think it's a different kind of moral considerability. Maybe I'm being speciesist because I have this view about trees or something, but for some reason I, I seem to pick out these properties of sentience and cognitive properties as being at least basic for it, as, as intrinsic properties for moral considerability. But I think you're right. And I, I'm not closed off to the idea that, that thousand-year-old redwood trees have intrinsic properties that make them morally considerable. It just seems to me that right now, what makes sense to me is they have properties that are relational. 
So I, I think there's something about the tree being a thousand years old has meaning for me, and and, um, and that's why it's more really so. So I don't you know those questions about trees and, and stuff, plants. Boy, that that's a tough one for me. I haven't quite thought through thought it through, but I, I'm open to the idea of trees um, being more like considerable on intrinsic problems. I think that's a great question. I just haven't thought it through. Uh, Oh, there's one last question. Well, can you pick? I, I, my students here, I'm partial to my students. Okay, the other thing is, it depends on your time. I don't I don't know if there's people coming in the room. So if you need to leave for a class, you know, feel free to get up and go, and, and as long as you're here. I'm fine. I can stay. Well, other people can stay and I can, ask questions. I can, I'd want. be happy to stay and be pummeled by questions. Yeah. I, I just wanted to know if you thought that if there was a moral like, intrinsic ability of a thousand year old climate tree, wouldn't that also extend to weeds and to other plants as well? Because there's no real well, I, then I, you know what I have to do? I have to start making matrices, you know, trees and then creosote and then grass and, you know, I'll do that in another lifetime. I'll, maybe you can do that. I'll leave that to you. But no, I agree. I have to do that. Oh, so you had a question. Yeah, I, I had actually a couple of questions. One of them was that I would like uh, maybe to be a little bit more clear with regard to uh, what you meant by Okay, good. Full biographic consideration. And the other question All right. is that you picked a cognition yes. and focused on that. Right. And the only emotion that you identified was in science. Right. What about him? I, I have to say that that's really good. And and I, it actually, in my dissertation, I have passages on just the, on different emotions, but the reason why I picked anxiety to put into my matrix today is because it's, um, it's an important emotion with regard to being the object of treatment. I mean, empathy is, is important too with regard to how you're going to treat something, but what I, what I was thinking, the reason I picked anxiety out, you know, sort of for this talk is because, um, because if you have a creature, let's say, who, who has the capacity for anxiety and another creature that doesn't all things being equal that creature who has that particular property of anxiety requires different treatment when I put it in the cage or I or I, I separate it from its family or something so that's the reason why I focused on anxiety however I suffering. Your suffering is related to the anxiety however I agree with you there's a range of emotions and there's a lot of great stuff in the literature. In fact, Darwin wrote a great book about animals and emotions, uh, non-human uh, uh, animals and emotions. Anxiety is a, a natural choice for a graduate student. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anxiety, fear, and guilt, the three things that drive graduate students. Um, but let me go back to your other question about these uh, properties. And I'll just to talk very quickly, because this this can kind of get, um, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So, uh, I think this is what we were talking about. So, let me just let me just gesture at this point at, at, at what I mean by these things. So, sentience, I just mean the ability to experience pain or pleasure. So, that's pretty basic. And anxiety would be an emotion associated with um, you know, fear, let's just say. Self-recognition 
there are studies in which they take bonobos, and everyone's sort of seen these self-recognition studies where they put a little mark on the chimpanzee's forehead, they stick it in front of a mirror, and certain species actually rub their foreheads and other species rub the mirror. So these types of studies are supposed to be indicative that the particular beings have a sense of self. In other words, that reflection is of me, right? which is different than there's another chimp. That's what my cat does. My cat growls at itself. Um, Self-awareness, that seems pretty obvious. Like awareness of yourself as a, as a self, as an intimate individual entity. Um, you know, something like that. Autonoetic memory would be something like, not only, so autonoetic memory is, it, it requires self-awareness, but it also requires that your awareness of yourself is tracked over time. So you can think, uh, yesterday this happened. <coughs> So you might say, like, um, I mean, of course, look, any behavior that I explain, there are tons of behavioristic you know, models that can just explain it all away. But let's just say that behaviorism, it might be wrong. I don't, I, maybe I'm maybe I'm crazy. But let's just say if behavior is wrong, is wrong. And I have a dog, and, you know, the, I, every time I, I hit him with a newspaper, the next day I raise the newspaper, the dog cringes. Well, of course, you could say that's a stimulus response model. But some people might say, here's, a, here's another explanation. It has some kind of autonoetic memory. It remembers the paper being hit, it associates it with the pain. So what I'm getting at is, if there is that kind of cognitive capacity in an individual, that adds to the way that we have to think about our treatment of it. Because it's different. If I have a dog, every time I hit it with the paper, the next day it's just like, duh, duh, and it doesn't remember, then I, 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 when I take out the newspaper, I don't have to worry about it having anxiety, because it all remembers is nothing, it doesn't remember it. What do I mean by theory of mind? By theory of mind, I mean the following thing. In the literature, I mean, this isn't my nomenclature, in the literature, a theory of mind is simply this. Anytime that a cognizer holds a belief, let me put aside belief problems, but anytime a cognizer holds a belief that involves the mental state of another cognizer, that's called having a theory of mind. That's all that means. So, for example, um, you know, you might look at someone and say, oh, he look, he's, he's, you, you see me outside and I'm crying and you say, he's sad. You have a theory of mind because you've postulated, you've postulated about my mental state. So you have a theory about what's going on in my head. And some, Chimps, actually, there, there, there have been some um, studies where I'll just show you a few examples. Um, some chimps who do something like this. Let me just show you quickly. And of course, none of these studies is, is conclusive. It's all controversial, and the behaviorists just ripping them apart. But of course, so you have a, you have an experimenter, and this person has a bag, and that bag is associated with having an injection for an inoculation for a vaccine, and the person has a lab coat on. And here's a chimp. And this chimp sees this particular experimenter coming down the hallway. There's a wall here, and here is another chimp. This chimp sees this experimenter, gets a grimace on its face, starts gesturing towards this chimp, 
in an agitated way. What's the explanation? The explanation is this chimp thinks this guy doesn't know this guy's coming and I better tell him. If that's really what's going on, that's a hell of a sophisticated then that's the theory of mind. It might be wrong, but that might be purely behavior. And to this, that they also show that the first chimp recognizes that the second chimp knows what's going on, and he doesn't. Oh, that's good, yeah. So as soon as this guy, as soon as this chimp recognizes that this one understands that the guy with the needle is coming, then he stops behaving. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. So that's what I mean by theory of mind. And then full biographical consciousness is that we have, which would be having all of this stuff plus abstract thought. Like abstract mathematics or dreams or science fiction, advanced kind of like abstract thinking. Full biographical consciousness just needs the, you know, the extreme rational agents that we are that kind. So that's what I meant by all this stuff. And I have tons more on this stuff. Was there any, were there any other questions? Could you put Matrix 2 back up? That's where you take the inventory. Oh, yeah, you know. That, that one? Okay, I'll find it. <laughs> Here it is. the earthworms go, what I had on that other chart was that there is evidence of opioid receptors in earthworms, but there's no evidence of nociceptors, and nociceptors are associated with being nerve cells that fire just function for pain. Now, I'm not claiming, I mean, look, um, I, I agree that if I go up to an earthworm and I, if I have a, a you know, a lighter or something, it's going to try to get away from the heat, right? So, uh, you can look at that behavior and say, well, that behavior is consistent with a creature who has, who's experiences pain. And so that's one explanation of it. What to do is to, is to investigate scientifically, and the best, the, it seems like to me the best and only way, way we have to do this, the best model we have is to go, here are human beings, we're pretty sure that human beings have these properties. Let's use the human being as a model, and let's look and see if there are homogeneous uh, organs and systems. And so when we go down and go to, go down, I say, go down the line, when we get to an earthworm, a flatworm or something, and we uh, an earth, regular earthworm, we go, that doesn't have nociceptors, it doesn't have any any of these things. The only thing it has is opioid receptors. So then I put a question mark saying, it's not enough for me to feel confident to say that it feels feels pain. Because there's another explanation as to why it runs away from the lighter. It could just be a stimulus response. So all of this that I did, I was trying to be as scientifically reputable as possible. Now, between you and I, I just don't feel right lighting a, an earthworm on fire just because I feel like it. I don't know why. I, maybe, maybe I feel like, you know what, I'm going to err on the side of caution. But 
but to do it this way, I think, is I, can't, I don't want to appeal to intuitions or um, that kind of thing. And also, the, the other question on this, I'm surprised to see, I, I didn't get a chance to really see this, it was up fairly fast, but um, the only mammal you have fully fully, as far as I can see, is, is the rat. Um, I, I, I can't tell. Oh, I'm sorry. Seepins, but sorry I'm about wondering, that. What, so, would, what the, would be considered um, of the land mammals the most intelligent of the land mammals? Because we know that dogs and elephants can do an amazing things. It would be interesting to oh. see how they would respond to there, I didn't see a lot of studies about dogs. There wasn't a lot in the literature. Um, uh, not in the kind of stuff that I was looking at. But there was a lot of stuff on parrots and chimps, too. Um, and that's why some of the stuff I have question marks like with pigs. In all the literature that I've read, supposedly pigs are much more intelligent than dogs. Pigs are some of the most intelligent mammals. But whether or not it's not clear whether or not pigs can pass a self-recognition test. Whether, you know, I put question marks here. It's doubtful that they, I put no for full biographical consciousness. But I don't know about a theory of mine. I mean, I've been around pigs. I have friends who have pig rescues and I've hung around. And, you know, look, this is not scientific. This is purely um, anecdotal. But they seem to have complex social relations that would involve some kind of theory of mind. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I guess to answer your question, you'd be surprised at how little literature there is in this in these tests, with especially with pet animals. It's mostly laboratory animals. And people don't like, you know, to find out that dogs are being experimented, which they are. So I guess we have a test. That's what I suspect is that dogs are experimented a lot, but it may be very difficult for someone to actually uh, politically Yeah, we don't like to Yeah, I think you're right. Are there any other questions? Is there? Hi, Liz. Over a certain period of time, the animals were 
I think, let me see if I could, let me see if I have exactly what you're saying. So, are you saying, um, no, look, here's, I think what I'm trying to do with this, this work here is to say that, um, given any particular organism, if I assess the properties, the intrinsic cognitive properties of that organism at any time t, then that will give it some kind of uh, cognitive property quotient or just some, some way to add it up. And then at that point, it will fit somewhere in, in the story of how it should be treated. Now, I think that maybe you might be asking me, do I have a theory or story about... Are you asking me... Do I have a theory about how these properties arise and then how they're related to treatment? Or I'm not exactly sure. Like, um, sorry. I'm, no, I'm sorry. Um, I'm a little bit dense right now. No, I, I guess that's, it might be different with animals because they seem to have Right. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree um, with you. Yeah. That seems right. Like, so I've been sort of wondering about like how you would account for a transition that was even a single child would be able to make from, for example, like being considered because they have interests or pain to being considered because they're moral agents. Right. Um, and I'm wondering if like Like I said, if you have one, mem if you have one organism, I'm not. I don't even. I don't even need to use species. If I have one organism of any species and it has particular cognitive properties, and then I have another organism of whatever it is and it has different cognitive properties, it may be the case that they get different moral treatment, depending on what theory which theory values which. Properties, but as a, sort of overall, as the other guy was, the guy was saying, is overall meta theory. Um, how they acquire the properties um, or their position in the moral theory—that's just a, relative to whatever properties they have. So let's take, for example, the child. As the child develops, it's going to—it's going to gain more and more moral considerability. When it reaches a certain level, it might be topped out, let's say, 
full biographical consciousness. But, um, so I think the position that it's in is contingent simply on what individual properties each individual organism has. I don't think I answered your question. I, I think I'm, I'm having a difficult time answering your question. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of these things are threshold phenomena, right? And some of these are continuous. And and like it seems like that might be a problem with animals. Right. If you're trying to describe on a particular level. I agree. But like this animal's property has as well. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I, I don't know. Once we solve the mind body problem, then we can answer that. <laughs> so, talk to me in 50,000 years. What's that? some properties that seem to be threshold phenomena. For example, one of the, the other studies that's very popular, everyone, maybe everyone has read it or knows of it, the false belief task, where, you know, you have a child who can attribute a false belief to a conspecific, to, for example, his or her mother, and there seems to be a point at which it just happens. So a child, around three to four years old, a child will not be able to say that mommy you know, so basically the setup is this. There's two jars, experimenter and mommy. Experimenter puts the cookie in the first jar. Mommy leaves. The experimenter moves the cookie to the second jar. Says to the kid, where's mommy going to think the cookie is when she comes back? Before a certain age, every kid says, mommy thinks the cookie's in the jar where you just put it. That's supposed to indicate that the child does not have the capacity to attribute a false belief to its mother. And for some reason, at some point in development, boom, the child says, mommy thinks it's still on the first one because she left when, and then you moved it. That is supposed to be an advanced cognitive property of what's called false belief attribution. That's a property that just seems to be a threshold phenomenon. It just happens. It's not like a continuum. So there's some interesting... There also, And let me just say, contingent on that, or related to that, is there's, some, uh, there's a guy at Harvard named Halzer who... He claims to have had a, a non-linguistic experimental setup where the cat monkeys have actually passed the false belief test. So that's really interesting. Mm. That's a really advanced cognitive capacity yeah. to think about it. Um, mm. uh, so it's always best to think your mother knows everything. And <laughs> <laughs> and At least like, mothers feel that way, right? Well, mothers feel that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One more? 
Can you yeah, I can do one more question. This one is more. Like a personal question for you, but like, this is my students, so I have to uh, answer this question. All of your work is pretty terrible. Like, this is what we learned about cannabis. So, this is how we apply to different periods that we can tell we're being consistent about because what we've learned about the ability to cannabis possess is the fact that But after learning all of this that we have now, yeah. Is there a at least a de facto, like a practical moral theory that you can advocate or that can endorse as a result of what you've learned? Right? Is there? Yeah. Obviously, they have different ramifications. Right. These different organs. So I think that I. I I tend to lean towards some kind of consequentialism. I tend to reject the thing, the problem that I have. Look, I don't. I guess my answer to your question, straight answer is, I don't have a particular moral theory that, in general, like as an overarching theory that covers all my cases. I tend to be more of a consequentialist, and I have reasons for that that I can get into with you. But I tend to reject a lot of the Kantian notions because the Kantian notions are so restrictive with regard to rationality and the requirements to be a Kantian agent. And the reasons why Kantians think things are bad just don't sit well with me. Like I said earlier today, if you're a Kantian, the reason why it's wrong if, for me to light my cat on fire is because it, dis, it devalues humanity in some way. And I think the answer is, is because the cat feels pain, QED, that's the story, right? So um, those kinds of things bother me. Of course, there's counterexamples to consequentialism that bother me as well, but I tend to lean towards consequentialism. And I do have my own kind of ideas of personhood and, and a moral theory related to personhood and these properties. But in general, I didn't think for our answer today, I'd say I, I tend to find myself being more consequential. I thought that was great. Oh, that was interesting. Thank you. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.